Um, you know, John the Baptist, you guys are in good company, hey? Um, there's this one line that he says in the Bible, which always kind of haunts me a little bit. He's, he's out in the desert and he's ministering and all these people are gathering around him and doing stuff. And John was weird. John, you would not have been friends with John. You would have high-fived him from a distance and like, I don't know, that guy. Unfriended him on Facebook straight up. Particularly when his profile pictures is locusts and camel. You're like, John, John, just take a bath. And, um, and so his, uh, he says these things. I love it. He says this thing. He says, all these people are gathered, and he asks this question. He says, what did you come out into the desert to see? What did you come out to see? And then we just kind of read through that and skip over. But that question is completely loaded. Because a whole bunch of people were coming to see a Jesus that they expected who didn't actually exist. They were coming in the hope of a Messiah, and in their mind, their Messiah was something. But the Messiah who actually came was about to break all their boxes. And I think every time we gather as a church, and I would say this isn't part of necessarily what we're talking about this morning, but I feel like there's something on this community at the moment where the Lord would come and meet with us and ask you the question, ask me the question, what did you come out to see? What did you come expecting this morning, right? Where was your level of expectation? Uh, has Jesus come, become to you some kind of comfy philosophy, a nice addition to your life, an app on your phone that you can open up when necessary and close when inconvenient? Okay. If that's where we are located, then that Jesus, friends, has no power to change your life. No, no power. If the Jesus that you and I worship is compartmentalizable, then that Jesus is far too small to meet the searching desire of your soul. So you came here hungry for something, but the thing you came here hungry for will not be satisfied by a religious ideology. The thing you came here hungry for, what you're looking for, is the eternal Son of God, who is someone seated at the right hand of the Father, who has poured out his living spirit into the earth so that the people of God may be the walking representation of the creator of all things here on planet earth. That's why you're here. So this is not virgin active and it's not a spinning class. You're with me? We're gonna just check in and check out, okay? This, this is a training ground for your eternal personhood. You're like, yo, I thought I was just coming to church. Yeah, welcome. Okay, coffee's a nice thing. If that gets you in the door, that's rad. But once you're in the door, I hope you're expecting more than coffee. Because the guy who said, let there be, he's here. And I feel like that's not just this moment. I feel like that would be, if there's a word of the Lord over this community at this time, I feel like that would be something that he's pressing into for you. Please, God, don't settle for so little as a religion. Please. Please don't come to the end of your life just being a good Baptist. Jesus is not a Baptist. Jesus is not a Christian. Yo, now we're upsetting people. We'll get into it now. Jesus, Jesus is so bigger than, he's so much bigger than the systems that we pledge our allegiance to. So much bigger. And his invitation is to a living, real experience with the creator of the universe. If we're not setting our expectation at that level, then, then we are genuinely wasting our time. 
the only thing that God offers us is like helping us be well-adjusted to a broken world, then just go to a counselor. Okay. But that's not, that's not why we are here. We are here because of a supernatural resurrection of the soul. That's what this is about. And that's what Mission Week is about, right? Spark. And uh, I'm going to talk to us about that, and I want to start off with a story. Is everyone still okay? Okay. Cool. So I was in a place called Alex. Um, we'd been walking around for a few days, and we'd been serving in this community. And what we'd been doing is we'd been cleaning up rubbish, we'd been looking after kids, we'd been praying for different people in the community, and, and it, was a, it was a great time. As we were coming to the end of our days there, some of the community came up to us and they asked me a question. They said, would you come pray for Ruth? They, they described her, the way they, they named her was Maruth, right, with affection. It was like, and when they described Maruth, they kind of described her as a, a bit of affection and a bit of sadness as a pillar of her community who had been like a safe place for all the children in the neighborhood over the years. And now she was sick. And so they came to us and asked if we would come pray for Maruth in the hope that she would be healed. The reason they knew about God is because Ruth had told them about God in the years that she had served in this community of Alex. If you don't know Alex, it's a township of over 180,000 people just outside Johannesburg where people live in very meager circumstances. It's just a really, it's a tough life to live there. And so I'm kind of intimidated. I don't know what God's gonna do with this prayer, but I'm, I'm like, sure, okay, let's go. So I followed two men in and around what kind of feels like a maze of steel shacks and, and crooked buildings around corners and through shadows. And eventually we come around this one corner and we're standing in front of a, a door, pale, like peeling blue paint and the door's kind of warped. And just looking at the door, you get a hint of what's gonna happen inside, hey? And so they knock on the door. And as they knock on the door, they, they kind of say, and it was funny, they were almost like children all of a sudden, these big grown men became very timid kind of knocked on the door, and I just thought, who's inside? Who's inside here? Knock on the door, Maruth. And then you hear from the inside through like a creaking voice, yeah, bo. Okay, and so they push the door a little bit open, and apparently yeah, bo means come in there, and so we kind of, we all come in, and we, I have to bow down before like as a sagging door frame. And as I walk in, there's Maruth over a paraffin-lit stove per, store, storing uh, porridge, huge bowl of porridge. And she's looking up at me from the ground, and, and there are well-burnt candles dimly lighting the shack on a dust floor that's not much different than the past that led us there. And so she calls me down. So I get down. Get down to Maruth. So now we're down in the dirt, right? And as I get down, I realize Maruth is sitting on a sort of broken skateboard. Um, and she pulls herself close to me, lay way more close than is actually comfortable. It's right up here. And she starts telling me her story, man. And as she's telling me her story, it's almost like this well-rehearsed script that you've heard so many times in that community. That her daughter had two children and then died of AIDS. And the father of these children left long before the children were even born. And now Maruth was looking after these two kids, but not just these two kids, many of the kids in the, in the neighborhood. She was this like, safe place for all these fragile lives. And she starts telling me the story. And all of a sudden, I just feel completely overwhelmed. I'm, I'm like, like, what do I have to offer in this moment? Sure, I could tell her about hell. 
I could tell her about her need for a savior. I could, I could pray the sinner's prayer with her, right? Because that's why we're here, because that's the gospel. That's why we came. But I just felt like, I don't know, threats about hell weren't going to carry much weight when she woke up to hell every morning. She goes on to tell me that the reason she's on a skateboard is because she's actually been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which is why she can't work, which is why she can't always walk around because it's actually just too painful. So then I think, well, maybe I should tell her about heaven. Maybe that's hope for her to hold on to. But I'm just so honest with you guys, as I'm looking around at her unwashed bed linen and her broken cutlery, heaven kind of feels a bit like opium for the masses, right? That just crumbles under the weight of a very real need, kind of falls into the black hole of her life, at least as I saw it. And so what ends up happening is I don't have, I don't have any more like Bible-based pep talks, none. I don't know even how to pray. I don't even know what to say. And so I just sit there in the room, just paralyzed, quiet. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that when the reality of the world collides with the assumptions of your faith, and then your faith is found wanting. See, I, I had preached, man, I'd preached to, to youth all over, the, all over the world, really. And in auditoriums, packed out young people, passionate, dressed to the nines, new shoes, tight jeans, good shirts, impressing people here to find a wife and Jesus at the same time. <laughs> and I'd, I'd told them about this Jesus, and I'd say to them, listen, this is everything that you need. He is, and I believed it. In the, in the depths of my bones, I believed it. But in that moment, the fire that usually burns in my bones around the gospel, fire went out, just was cold. I had nothing. Ended up asking questions like, why? Why her? Why this? And then one question that shook me, and I wasn't actually expecting it, the question was, why Jesus? Why, why Jesus? See, as I was looking at my Ruth, there were, there were a whole bunch of things that I felt she needed, and if I'm very honest, Jesus was not one of them in that moment. At least not the Jesus of my 20-minute youth sermons. Not the Jesus of the, just take a deep breath, you'll be okay. Just hold. It was so empty in that moment. And so I got left with this question of, does Jesus really matter here? And, and not just here in, in Maruth's shack, but but think about this question in broader terms. Does, does Jesus really matter for the people rioting in Venezuela? Does pe- Jesus really matter for the many refugees all over the world who have lost their homes? Does, does Jesus matter for those families who were affected by 9-11? Not just the American families, but the families in, her, in Iraq who have lost loved ones from drone strikes where terror waged war on terror from a country that claimed Jesus who would rather die on a cross than pick up a sword. And not just there, does Jesus matter in the the bomb streets of Syria? Does Jesus matter to the families uh, in that mosque in New Zealand? Does Jesus matter for those who were murdered in churches in Pakistan? Does Jesus matter there? And if Jesus does matter there, why does he matter there? What does he carry that matters to those people? But then not only that question, does Jesus cross the spectrum of human need? See, does he matter to the guy with the private jet? 
Two supermodels on either arm, flying from island to island, genuinely happy in his life. This man does not cry himself to sleep because when he crashes his Lamborghini, he buys another one. What does Jesus carry for that guy? Because he has no immediate need. You say, oh, his conscience. No, his conscience is buried in excess. When he feels sad, he has some more caviar. So, so what does Jesus have for that guy? But even not only that, closer to home. Let's look at your life, maybe. So average person in the room, maybe you wake up at 5 o'clock. <laughs> some of you are going, in your dreams. <laughs> if you have children, <laughs> okay, you just try to get them to school without murdering them. If you don't have children, if you're single, then you just try and minimize your snoozes to three. Then you get out of the house and you're in traffic and you're driving around and you kind of make it through traffic without crashing into everybody on the street. Then you get to the office and people, right? How sweet life would be without people. And then you finish and you're supposed to do exercise because that's what they tell you. So maybe you go to the gym, but most of the time you just swipe your card for points, eh? We see you. And Virgin Active sees you. Richard is watching. And then you come home and you maybe got to have a bath, whether it's your bath or your children's bath. Either one is challenging. Hygiene is like, it's tricky. And then after this, after some dinner, which hopefully you made, or otherwise just bought like a roast chicken of some kind. Uh, then if you're married, you want to try and have some together time, right? Some quality time. But that ultimately turns into a group nap session. And if you're single, you are just trying to avoid the temptation to swipe right and actually have a meal with a real human being sometime before you're 50. And in honesty, who has time for that? Because, you know, we work. And this all, of course, assumes that you have a car, assumes that you have a wife or a husband or some significant other to help you through the craziness that is your world and just arrive at the end of the story with some semblance of sanity still remaining. And then someone like me stands in front of someone like you and goes, let's share the gospel. You go, I'm just trying to sh- just live. Yes? True? True. And so we have cool sermons. We walk out the door. We're very excited. And then life happens. And all of a sudden, this idea of like, yeah, Jesus, goes like, just don't kill anybody. And so we're left with this one penetrating question, and this is the question that really does haunt me. Is Jesus unique and essential for all people in all places at all times? Is he? Is Jesus valuable enough for you to reorder your life so that the central purpose of knowing him and making him known becomes the reason you breathe in the morning? Is he? And if he is, why? Because I'm convinced that before we talk about what, we've got to understand why. Unless you have a motivation at the center of your being that is so powerful and so strong that it mobilizes you through the discomfort of obedience, you will not step into obedience. You won't. So if Jesus is just a nice add-on or some kind of nice philosophical trimming to your already ordered life, it's highly unlikely that he's going to be centered in your story. So we need a substantial and robust reason for us to say yes to the mission of God in our world. Does that make sense? So what is that reason? Because Jesus seems pretty convinced that the answer to our question is yes. Well, we meet Jesus in Galilee. He's just done a whole bunch of ministry. And he's got his 11 friends with him. Number 12, 
Tough day. And so these guys have met him out on this mountain. Now Jesus knows what these guys don't know. He knows that in just a moment, he's going to tell them something that is going to change the trajectory of trajectory, trajectory of their life and then everybody else's life for the next 2,000 years. Okay. So the Son of God, 11 nobodies from nowhere, and one moment to make the speech of all speeches that is going to change the whole world. No pressure. No pressure. What would you say? What are you expecting in this moment? Tell you what I'm expecting. I'm, I'm expecting something rousing, something stirring, something like, uh, something like this. Never listen to this guy. Uh, I don't know if that does to you what it does to me. Whenever I watch it, I, I just get tears, man. I'm just like, yeah. It's also because I have a man crash on Denzel Washington. <laughs> but I mean, that, wow. It's not, not, only, it's not only the moment. It's like, it's the substance of what he's saying, right? It's, it's powerful. And the language and the words, the hot lead, I mean, just, it's poetry, man, and it's stirring you. And I, I, if I heard something like that, man, just send me to war. I'm just ready. I'm just like, ah. And so here, here we are. This is that. I want you to understand that's what this moment is, right? So there's Jesus standing, and here's what we get next. Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A couple of pieces in this passage. Because of his authority, Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, because of his obedience to death, has been raised up to the highest place. Everything is now under him. And Jesus knows this, and so he's funneling all his eternal authority and power into one commandment. Big deal. So whatever comes next, after he says, all authority has been given to me, whatever comes next, big deal. You with me? And then the thing that comes next, go and make disciples. To which we all go, woo! And then also, what? I don't know if you were expecting something else like, I'm pretty sure those guys on that mountainside were expecting something else, right? Because they're facing Rome. They're going back to persecution. Families. It's, 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 a, it's a tough day at the office where they're going. And so their response is not, woo! I can imagine them in the back going, make, make disciples. Make, make disciples. I can imagine Peter going, Jesus, because <laughs> rock. Um, make disciples. And then he's gone. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we find that commission underwhelming. And the reason we find it underwhelming is because we've lost sight of what disciples really are. And we've lost sight of what disciples really are because we've lost sight of what the gospel really is. Yes? What, What do I mean by that? When we speak about the gospel, most of us have what I call a home affairs cue gospel. A home affairs cue gospel is this idea that our job in sharing Jesus is to get people in the right line, in front of the right counter, so they can fill in the right form. And then when they put the right form through the right window, they get the right passport, so that when they die, they end up going to the right place. Home affairs. Painful. We have very little interest in actual discipleship to Jesus because Jesus has taken on a utilitarian value for us. What I mean by that is that most people come to Jesus because they want heaven or to avoid hell. They're not really interested in Jesus. So we have heavenists or hellists, but not Christians. 
It's sanctified idolatry. And so, because this is what we've communicated, that the only point of salvation is for you to pray a prayer and then just kind of have some kind of passive waiting room spirituality, just wait it out until you die, and then it's all going to burn anyway, so you'll just escape. As a result, the church stays locked in its seats and not in the streets because you have no reason to be in the streets. Because the whole point of salvation was just to pray a prayer so that we could go to heaven when we die. So when we're talking about make disciples, we're thinking converts. And when we think converts, it's no wonder that we don't want to invest our lives in that task because it seems irrelevant, because it is irrelevant. And it's no wonder that the world's not invested in this message either, because to the world, facing very real problems, the idea of escapist spirituality sounds a lot like placebo effect, or euthanasia, or anesthetic. It's just a life is hard, pretend it's not so bad, and don't worry, if you believe in Jesus, it'll be okay in the end. Don't you know what I'm not saying? I believe in heaven. Praise God. But hey, Jesus didn't die to get us into heaven only. He died to get heaven into us. Yes? So what did he mean when he said make disciples? And then we're going to move through this now. Um, We're going to move over a few things. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 21. Listen to this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might not live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If this is what Jesus meant when he said make disciples, is it any wonder that that's his plan? Can you imagine what would happen if the two billion plus people, just think about this, the two billion plus people who call themselves followers of Jesus today actually became the kind of people who were controlled by the love of Christ? Not just comforted by the love of Christ, but controlled by it. Like Jeremiah who says, I've decided not to speak of God. But even if I decide not to, I can't because his word is like a fire in my bones. I can't keep it in. I couldn't shut it down even if I tried. Imagine if there were a bunch of people who were disciples of Jesus who were controlled by his love. Imagine if there were two billion people dead to self and living for Christ. Where ego was gone, this wasn't about us, this was about him. We weren't trying to push our own agenda, but enter into his eternal story. What if there were two billion new creations in Christ? People free from their shame. People not held back from stuff that they had done in the past because they realized that Jesus had finished it and the way was open. What if there were two billion people reconciled to God? People who knew that in Jesus, when he said tetelestai, he meant it. That we don't have to stay in the pigsty anymore. We can come home. We don't have to stay outside in the cold and be angry at God's generosity. We can come to the party because we are reconciled to God. And then not only that, but two billion people reconciling with God whose lives have such substance because of the God that they worship that everywhere they go becomes an outpost of eternity. 
Imagine that. And then imagine two billion ambassadors of the kingdom of another world. When they walk into rooms, they have such patience, virtue, grace, love that people look at them and go, you are evidently not from around here. People who are mouthpieces of God, who aren't afraid to speak truth, but that truth is an explanation of a life lived. Imagine that. Imagine two billion people awakening the world to righteousness in God. You no longer have to stand outside. You can now be invited in because Jesus has done it. You have righteousness in Christ. If there were two billion people who live like that, can you understand why the call make disciples has real weight and gravitas in our earth? All of a sudden, the question why Jesus is answered. And not just for everybody, not just for some people, but for all people. Because ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is that the gospel is not a Christian issue. The gospel is a human issue. In this passage, he's not inviting us to a religion or an institution, but to a way of being. He's saying, I'm not asking you to be Christian. He's not super interested in our Christianness. He's interested in our humanness. Why? Because the gospel is about the redemption of our humanity. That's what we lost in Genesis, that imago day state of being which is aligned with God and lives itself out in the world. And that's what Jesus has come to restore. How do you know this is even possible? We see it all over history. The Nelson Mandela's of this world, the Desmond Tutus of this world, the Mother Teresa's, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s. When people live into God's imagination of humanity, they become redemptive agents in the moment. How do I know it's true? It's because I saw it in my roof that day. I'm sitting in her room with no words to say. She leans across to me, puts her hand on top of my hand. And I say to her, these are the words that just fall out of my mouth. How, how do you do this? How do you, how do you stay here? She looks off into the distance, almost like she's remembering an old friend, and she just starts mumbling underneath her breath over and over again. God is good. God is good. God is good. She looks at me, she says, can I pray for you? She starts to pray for me. I can't even remember what she prayed, honestly. But in that moment, as I looked up again, the Jesus I was struggling to believe in was staring at me through my roof. The substance of her redeemed humanity filled the room. She goes back to her porridge, starts stirring. I say, what are you doing, Maurice? She says, I'm making porridge for the children. I say, which children? She kind of looks out the door, she says, all of them. I left that room wanting the humanity that I found in her because that's what Jesus does, does. And I knew no other name under heaven or earth by which I could be saved into that kind of love but Christ. And all of a sudden, Jesus has a reason. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now um, that you have a reason. Our why is answered in you, Jesus. Your eternity is real for us. Our humanity is restored in you. So what we're asking for right now is, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you give us an eternal conviction to believe again that you are the most important thing in our whole world. Help us to say yes to your invitation, God, so that as we discover our humanity for ourselves, we may be agents of your new humanity to the whole world. And like Maruth, even in the most difficult of circumstances, we could be a light that actually matters. I pray this for this church and for this community. In Jesus' name.